We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We have a short chapter to read here in Chronicles, so let's turn there. The Second Chronicles in 27. The Bible says in Second Chronicles 27, I hope you'll follow along as I read, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushah, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still the people acted corruptly. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forests he built fortresses and towers. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. The people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third years also. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. You can do the math. 25 plus 16. Some of us have already surpassed that uh, age of 41. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, brother? We didn't quite, uh, he didn't quite reach the uh, age of his forebearers uh, back in Genesis 5, did he? Or even those in Genesis 11. That is quite shocking when you think about it. How does somebody, how does somebody perish when they're 41? It's just too young still, you know, but... All right, that's chapter 27. Okay, uh, I move on in uh, Matthew chapter 23, if you want to turn there tonight. Matthew chapter 23. Woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, This is the section 13 to 39. I've taken it all together in one uh, segment, although we could have treated each woe as a separate separate section. But uh, the first... Uh, woe, the Lord uh, exclaims that the uh, Pharisees and the scribes are closing the door to the kingdom of God to others. They're doing so by their false teaching. Uh, They are worthy of great condemnation, devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayer, uh, exhibiting their greed for personal attention and their greed for money. Woe number three is kind of related to woe number one. They're making sons of hell, as he calls them. They're going over land and sea, trying to make, uh, find people and make disciples to the Jewish faith, that is, proselytes. And when they convert them, they only succeed in making them worse off than they were before. Um, it kind of reminds me of the, remember the parable of the 
evil spirit that went out of a man and uh, went through dry places seeking to find some rest, and he didn't. So he went back to his original place, and he, took, and he found it swept and in order. And then he took seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they went and dwelt in that man. The, worst, the, the, the last state of that man was worse than the first. I'm getting ahead of myself there. So, you know, in life that's empty or devoid of, of God, just kind of swept and put in order, it seems like it's better, but then it invites worse things to come in. You know, that, that's kind of a, a spiritual vacuum, and that spiritual vacuum will let uh, things in and make the person worse off afterwards than they were even before. And that's what's, in, in a sense, happening here, although it's not the kind of, you know, had a demon was clean and then had more demons. This is like just somebody that's, you know, a regular work-a-day person, and uh, they get a, a, into this, you know, Judaistic system, and they are made into an even worse uh, moral condition than what they began. So... We certainly don't want to get involved in anything like that. Number four, woe, is in verses 16 to 22, and I just titled this one Lying. Uh, really, what it is is they're making false oaths uh, by you know, the temple, the gold of the temple, the altar, the, you know, by heaven, by the throne of God, or whatever, and, and different variations meant different things, basically either letting you off the hook or... Uh, forcing you to keep the oath, and really what they were doing is using that as an opportunity to lie um, and not have to f- fulfill their word. The Lord uh, reserves uh, the t- title fool for these folks. Uh, they do not fear God. They did not recognize that God saw through all of that, and it was entirely backwards anyway. For instance, the Lord said, you swear by the gold of the temple, but what is it that makes the gold even sanctified or, or noteworthy? Well, it's the temple itself. So the thing that's more important, you relegate that to a, a place of lesser importance in your oath-making. And we reminded ourselves that in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord taught us, just mean what you say. Say yes and mean yes. Say no and mean no. The Apostle Paul uh, ran into a little bit of trouble with the Corinthians because he had made plans to go be with them in 2 Corinthians, and I think it's chapter 1 that talks about this, and he, he made those plans, and then he had to retract them because it didn't work out. Well, in fact, if you follow Paul's ministry, you find out that you know he's going through Macedonia and Achaia, and he finds out somebody's trying to kill him, so he can't keep going that way. He's got to reverse course and go a different way. You know, there are constraints that caused him to be unable to carry out his initial Uh, promised uh, itinerary. And so he speaks to the Corinthians and says, you know, were we yes and no at the same time? In other words, are we talking out of both sides of our mouth? And he affirms to them, no, he had indeed plans to come, but he couldn't and and hope to make that good later on. So we have to leave a little bit of room here in our human interactions because, and graciously so, we should you know, when somebody schedules themselves and then double schedules themselves, they've got to go to one or the other of the parties that they double scheduled and say, sorry, I've got to reschedule. I didn't have the foresight to remember that I had double scheduled myself or this other circumstance came up, which is more urgent. Not that you're unimportant, but I have to set you aside for a later time and I have to deal with this issue. So let's be gracious with one another, but certainly we need to observe Carefully, when we speak, we need to mean what we say.
and not be liars. Very displeasing to God and very damaging to personal relationships uh, as well. Um, and and uh, you know somebody's reliability becomes called into question when they always you know say they're going to do something and then they renege and don't do it, and you begin not to be able to trust in them. So. Uh, number five, uh, we talked about woe number five. They were obsessing about small religious observances. They would uh, tithe their uh, mint and anise and cumin. Um, this is kind of like you uh, in your kitchen at home, and you know you have your maybe spice rack. And uh, you've come into possession of all these spices, and uh, you're all worried that, boy, if I don't get my 10% of that spice and put it into the church kitchen for its tithe, that uh, I'm going to be disobeying God. And that's what they were doing. Um, and not necessarily even really worried about disobeying God, but worried about not looking like they were religiously observant to outside observers. And while they were doing that, you know, a little uh, worried about all these little tithes of these little, you know, herbs, They were ignoring important matters of the law, mercy, justice, faith, and just dumping them off to the side. And they ought to have known better because Zechariah and Micah, uh, among other passages in Scripture, taught them, you know, what it is to do good, you know, mercy and justice and uh, treat the widows and orphans correctly and visit uh, them and help them and all of that. They were directing people away from the kingdom of God, but they were counting out their 10% of their tiny little herbs. And so we want to make sure that we are not like they. What I have taught from this, and I mentioned this, I think, on Wednesday, that the Lord says here in Matthew 23, 23, uh, you should, he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So we don't want to swing to the other extreme. You know, they have, they're tithing their little, you know, herbs, but not doing the important things in the law. We don't want to swing to the other extreme and say, well, all we have to do is, you know, hit the highlights, like the two or three different things that we need to do, and we'll ignore all the rest. That's what some people have done today, swinging over to the other side. And I just want to follow what the Lord has said here. These you ought to have done and not left the others undone. Both. You have duties, God's given you those duties, just care for them and do them to the best of your ability. All right, that's number five. Number six, woe number six, is in verses 25 to 26. There um, it says, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. First, he says, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Um, so I want to just summarize what I said here because it's important. Last, last time we talked about this. The Lord told them, cleanse the inside and then the outside, that the outside may be clean also. Did you notice that? You don't have to worry about cleaning the outside of your life if your inside is pure because what's inside will come out through the pores You know what I'm saying? What the Pharisees were doing was they had rot on the inside, and that would try to come on to the outside, but they got to hide that. They got to wash it. They've got to cover it up with vestments and 
and incense and religious observances and obsessing about the tithes of these herbs and stuff. And, and uh, they're always, always, always working to keep that facade up. And they have to lie and make these false oaths and make themselves look good and give these long prayers that they're not really praying to God, they're praying to themselves, praying to the audience for the audience's benefit so that they can get their kudos. And so the Lord says, when you concern yourself with cleaning the inside of your life, the outside naturally follows. Outside cleanliness comes naturally from inside purity, but inside dirtiness naturally results in outside uh, dirtiness as well. When we're talking, we're talking about sin, of course, moral purity. Okay, so if you have things you're trying to hide, things inside that are not right, you need to get those. You know, you need to take those to the dishwasher. Okay, let that be cleaned. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, and then that which is outside will come. The outside practices will follow, uh, will follow that. Okay, the, the uh, number seven woe is the same kind of thing uh, about uncleanness inside, and I don't remember if I touched on this uh, Wednesday night now, so I'm going to just touch this a little bit more in detail. This is verse 27 to 28. And it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you uh, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So inside full of dead dead men's bones, full of uncleanness, which the Lord is saying is is the illustration of being full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this had to be a serious problem because the Lord's used two now woes to explain this, this inner, inner outer uh, kind of issue, uh, the corruption that was in the lives of the scribes and Pharisees. Thank God for restraint to limit the expression of inner corruption when you are a youth, or I'll say it from my perspective, when I was a youth. That is, growing up in a Christian home, having parents who were disciplinarian to some extent, uh, restrain you from the excesses of expression of your sinful corruption when you're young. Because you start out corrupt. From the womb they go astray, speaking lies, Psalm 58.3. Nobody had to teach you how to do that. That was just natural. And in a context when you have unrestraining parents, that can just kind of flower into full criminality by the time you're in your teenage years. You see some of these teenagers that do incredibly terrible things, and you wonder where were their, not always, maybe they, you know, maybe they had a breakdown and suddenly went off the rails, but I don't think that's most of the cases. You've got unrestrictive, unconstraining parents, no discipline in the home, and that sort of thing happens. Um, So corruption being limited is on the outside expression is good, but the problem with that is it can be hidden inside the heart and not come out and uh, become a problem later on. You know, you've, I'm sure, thought about kids grow up in a Christian home, then they go off and they uh, 
They've got their taste of freedom and they just run amok. Well, that's because the corruption was in there. It just didn't have the opportunity to come out because it was restrained. I'd rather live in an environment where there's corruption within and it's constrained, you know, like the government puts criminals in jail so it's constrained and, and, uh, and all of that sort of thing so that, you know, that's the society at least is more orderly. But what would be better yet is if the society were orderly because the inside was clean and because people were morally concerned and wanted to restrain their own wickedness. This time, the Lord gives the picture of a whitewashed tomb. Uh, think of a beautiful sepulcher or a mausoleum where, uh, you know, it's on the grounds of a cemetery. It's above, above ground building, maybe made out of uh, what's a, a good stone that you can make that sort of thing out of. In the Middle East, it may be limestone, you know, something like that, but granite or something here, and it's beautifully polished, and it looks super and then you start stop to think about it and say, wait a minute, what's inside of there? <laughs> you know, uh, the Taj Mahal may be beautiful, but it's what? It's actually uh, a tomb. You know, it's a monument, marvelous monument, but it's a monument to a dead person and for the benefit of and fame of a dead person uh, inside these mausoleums or tombs um, or sepulchers are dead bodies and bones and decay and rot and bacteria and smells and ugh, uh, looks nice on the outside, but you don't want to spend a lot of time on the inside necessarily. In the same way, the Pharisees and the scribes appeared righteous on the outside from a distance, polished granite, but when you looked inside of their lives, they're completely given over to hypocrisy. You would be shocked to see the difference between how they look on Saturday Sabbath service and then go and see them on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday and listen as a fly on the wall to their conversation and how they speak and how they think. They're pretenders, fakers, actors, imposters. They're not really religious people. Their real motivations lie elsewhere, mainly with themselves and their own pleasure. Their religion is more like an inherited office that a person does not care much for. In Malachi, you had priests who sniffed at the responsibilities in the temple. Do you remember that, reading that passage in chapter 2? They were there not because they wanted to be there. They were serving not because they wanted to serve. They were there because of an inherited office that they had as Levitical priests, and they had to do it. Um, I'm very glad that we don't have an inherited system today of employment. Otherwise, you'd be doing the same thing your parents did, and I would be not pastoring or whatever thing I choose to do, you know, like in my former career as an engineer, software and computer engineer, I had the freedom to do that. I could choose kind of what I liked or what I thought I liked. And then I find out, you know, of course, a job is a job and there are parts of it you're not going to like, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, these, these fellows, many of them were just totally unfit. I mean, look at even early on, Aaron's sons. How many sons did he have? What happened to the two of them? They got a little toasty, didn't they? They got burned up. And because they weren't treating the, uh, the, the ministry, the service properly before God. So they're treating this like an inherited office that they just have to do. It's not something they're doing out of the 
desire of their hearts. Besides hypocrisy, another of the dead bodies inside their tomb was lawlessness. They had a complete disregard for the true meaning of the law. We see that today among those who are irreligious or not Christians. People, uh, I was just just driving along the road uh, down in our part of town here, and I saw somebody take a, 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 a cup, you know, it's got a, a lid on it with a straw, and they're done with it, and they just pitch it out the side, the passenger window, right onto Packard Road. And it's got a little extra in it, you know, so it kind of splatters on the road. And it's like, can't you wait till you get to a trash can somewhere and not trash up the place? Uh, without regard for the effect on others or the environment or the appearance of the neighborhood then, uh, you see people blow off stop signs. We see this out here, right, at Glenwood. Uh, you should see it during the week when people are coming from the university over here. They cut through the neighborhood to get to Washtenaw instead of going on Washtenaw. I mean, they go through that thing like there's not a stop sign within a mile. Just blow it off. That's why they had to put the speed bumps on there because of the new light that's up at the top of uh, Glenwood that goes uh, there to Washtenaw. And the neighbors were complaining, and they're supposed to do some more work yet. But... Um, so that, that has induced the community to take extra steps in order to reduce the effect of depravity in that regard. Unfortunate. You see people demanding to be able to kill unborn babies. You know, a very small minority of people in the state wrote that amendment, pathetic as it is, and have gotten it to be signed by a bunch of people who are in a fervor right now because they think they've lost all their rights under Roe v. Wade, and uh, they're, they're, the mob spirit has taken over. You just can see it. It's a mob, and they have no control. We're talking here, though, not just about man's law in the Scriptures. We're talking about God's law. And in terms of God's law, things that are legal in our culture or well accepted are uh, not acceptable to God. Wide swaths of the culture are given over to promiscuity, breaking God's laws for marriage. And we expect this in some way from people who are blind, whose minds are limited in the moral realm, who are living in darkness, but certainly from those claiming to be God's representatives, like Pharisees and scribes, it's even more unacceptable. They claim to be God's children or pretend to be, but like uh, they live like the devil's children that they really are. You are of your father the devil, the Lord said, not of God. So we ask ourselves again then, what is in our innermost thoughts and motivations? Do we think it's okay to be lawless? Do we think it's okay to pretend that we're not lawless while we actually are lawless? Now, why did God give his law anyway? It was for our good because you're never going to be truly happy. You're never going to be happy in the long run. You're never going to be joyful. You're never going to be satisfied if you're a slave to sin. That's just an axiom of life. You see people today depressed. You see drugs, suicides. You see all kinds of things that indicate that people are unhappy with the way that things are in society and in their lives, and it's sad. They don't, it doesn't have to be that way. If they knew the joy of the Lord as their strength, wouldn't that be something? 
Woe number eight is the last one in the Lord's diatribe here against the scribes and Pharisees. And it takes up uh, seven or eight verses here, verses 29 to 36. Let me read them to you and then uh, comment. 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." The Lord recounts recent history, evidently, where the religious leaders were busy engaged in projects to memorialize the prophets of the past. You know, we're going to build, you know, some tomb for some prophet. You know, we're going to build the World War II memorial or whatever, that kind of thing. You know, it's a good work. We're going to raise money for it. We're going to put that thing and we're going to show that, you know, we're really good. Uh, This was a religious activity to them, to build tombs and monuments and to beautify them. The Lord also reports that they thought and said, the hypothetical, that if we had lived back in the day with them, we would not have partaken with them in the murder of the prophets. They would have been smarter and not killed them. One of those murdered was Abel the very first murder victim. He was a man of God as evidenced by his faithful offering to God and the animal sacrifice that he made. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 4, just recently in fact. The other murder victim mentioned by Jesus is toward the end of the Old Testament era and it's a man named Zechariah, a very common name. Now there was a Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24. I want to have you turn there. 2 Chronicles 24, just a few weeks ago we read this. One of our sisters was saying this morning at the back door there after service that uh, the things I preached on, I touched on two or three things that she ran into in a reading of devotionals uh, you know, earlier this week or devotional that's coming up soon. And um, it was like, you know, you could take that as kind of a coincidence Like, wow, that's something. But on the other hand, what I said was, uh, and of course we know there's no such thing as a coincidence like luck. God ordains everything. But I said, you know, that's uh, to me a sign that, uh, a pointer toward the fact that all truth coheres perfectly together. I'm speaking something from the Word. Another devotional is speaking something from the Word. And lo and behold, we say the same thing. Wow, how's that possible? because we're agreeing with God's Word and trying to say, you know, repeat and rehearse and, and uh, review what God's Word is saying. 
And so all truth coheres together. And so we run into these things where like, oh, we just preached from Genesis 4, or we just talked about or just read in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Well, let's look at 2 Chronicles 24 in uh, verses 15 to 22, and I'll try to read through this quickly, maybe summarize some of it. Remember, Joash came to power when he was a very young person, and he reigned for a while in Jerusalem, 40 years in fact, and he was guided by Jehoiada the priest. This fellow grew old, verse 15 says, and full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. Now, this was fairly uh, good for this period of time, very good longevity. They buried him in the city of David, verse 16 says. Now, 17, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. You just have to wonder how many times it would take them to realize, here's the formula. You go after idols, you have problems. You go after the true and living God, things go well. Well, that's what God said would happen in the law, didn't he, in the the covenant. Verse 19, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord And they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, The Lord look on it and repay. The Lord look on it and repay. Zechariah, killed by the establishment types in Jerusalem. The king was all in on on it and everybody else as well. This fellow was the son of Jehoiada, the priest, uh, and thus he himself was a priest, it seems, and a prophet. So after Jehoiada died, Joash began to follow the ma- man's ways instead of the ways of God. And those are really the only two ways to live, either man's way or God's way. God's way or my way. I hope my way is God's way. That is that I've embraced that for myself, you too. When confronted by Zechariah, he, that is the king, killed the prophet at the the command of the king. They stoned him to death. And thus this fine man of God was killed. And he announced a judgment on them as he died. May the Lord look on this and repay. That's ominous. But I want you to notice something in the Lord's words in Matthew 23. He said something different a little bit than what we read here. He said that they killed Zechariah, the son of who? Whom? Who was that? Somebody had it? Son of Berechiah. This Zechariah was the son of, that we just read about, was the son of the priest Jehoiada. Now, some have suggested, well, maybe he was Jehoiada's grandson. Jehoiada had a son, Berechiah. Berechiah had, uh, it's possible, But Zechariah was a common name. In the book of Zechariah, it says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Uh Uh-oh. 
This means that there was another Zechariah, I think. This was the Zechariah, a different prophet than the first Zechariah. They killed him between the altar and the temple. So unsanctified are they that they use the temple precinct to murder a prophet of God. I mean, at other times more sanctified in Israel's history, like remember uh, when they got rid of Athaliah, who was the preceded Joash, isn't that right? She came near in the temple precinct. They got her out of there before they, you know, got rid of her. <laughs> um, they wouldn't, in the temple, in the precincts of the temple, that kind of activity, so unsanctified, so unholy. So it seems that they murdered two prophets named Zechariah. I mean, unless you take that other explanation about the the uh, genealogy being stretched uh, out one generation. But, I mean, this, this is really bad. And this case takes us up right to the end of the Old Testament. The Lord is basically saying, from the beginning of the Old Testament, the blood of Abel, all the way to the end of the Old Testament era, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, you guys have been terrible. And the spirit of those religious leaders of his day was exactly the same as the spirit of Cain, who killed Abel, and Joash, who killed the first Zechariah, and all the rest. And they shared guilt with them. They shared a solidarity relationship with them, murderers of men of God from the beginning of world history to recent generations in the time of Jesus. It just it floors me to think that these guys are saying, you know, we wouldn't have done that to these men of God. But yet they delighted to reject John the Baptist, see him put in prison and got rid of him. And they're going to about to, just days from now, do the same thing to Jesus. They're going to kill him. And they're so spiritual that when they go talk to Pilate, they can't actually go inside because if they go inside to speak to him, they'll make themselves defiled and won't be able to eat the Passover that day that they killed Christ. By saying that their fathers killed the prophets, they admit that they are offspring of those people. Now, this admission is not accepted as significant in the mind of the Pharisees, but it does show that they have an organic connection back to those earlier murderers. But they are more than physical descendants. It's kind of bad enough. I mean, if you knew, I don't know if any of you have this in your family history, but if you had a forefather who was literally a murderer. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of a part of the family tree you might not talk a lot about at social events or whatever? <laughs> um, you know, they were more, however, than mere physical descendants. They shared the same spiritual desire and tendencies of those earlier generation of murderers. Now, you might say this is a harsh analysis. I mean, that is rough. But remember this, Jesus knows everything in their hearts. He's reading their hearts as if it's like big print on the front page of the newspaper. He sees what's inside of them, and he knows that he's right. And he knows your heart, too. He sees what's in there, written in large print. Your th the things you love, the things you do, the sins you're hiding, the greed that's there, the lust, or whatever it is. They proved him right 
by killing John the Baptist and then Jesus himself. Now the Lord says, uh, how can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna in verse 33? There's no way for people who are unrepentant about their sin to escape condemnation. In verse 32, then the Lord sarcastically calls upon them to fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Just go ahead and let it rip, guys. If you're going to live this way, just do it. Get it over with. Go ahead and exercise your serpentness, your brood of vipers on the way to Gehenna. God gave them a multiple a multitude of opportunities to turn away from their wickedness by sending them, sending them many prophets, wise men, and scribes, but they persecuted, they killed those. And this adds up or will add up to the full measure of sin so that they will be clearly, um, it will be clearly just for God to punish them. There will be no question. There is no question. People who live like that, God has all the right in the world to punish them. I mean, think of the wickedness that they do, not only against the man, Zechariah, but against the God who sent the man and the message of the God who sent the man. The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, but when it was full, judgment would be poured out on them. Are you familiar with that allusion that I've just made to Genesis 15, 16? God said to Abram, send your people away for 400 years to Egypt. And when they come back, then I will judge the Amorites that are in the land because their iniquity right now, 400 years earlier, is not yet full. The Lord gave them 400 years, these Gentile peoples, to amend their ways, to hear from God, to repent, but they did not. And so really the Lord is is using language like God used in Genesis 15, but he's using it with these what I'll call Jewish Amorites. You get what I mean? Jewish people who have the characteristic of these Amorites whose iniquity is not yet filled, but it will be fulfilled in the future. God was excessively patient, we might say. Exceedingly patient. But their history was punctuated with rebellion against Him, and because of that, episodes of very serious judgment And one more, well, more than one more, but one more now was going to come upon them. One more episode of serious judgment. Over many hundreds of years, the Pharisees and their ilk lived for themselves in power and pleasure, but now it was not going to be so. So the Lord says that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. On you, people is going to fall this. And so uh, he talks about this generation having to deal with this judgment. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, this generation could refer to the nation of Israel as a whole, the nation in its unbelief, but it also could refer to the physical generation of people that the Lord was speaking to. And indeed, not 40 years future, 
the temple was destroyed and the entire city was sacked by the Romans. The disobedient people received some physical remuneration for their iniquity, and the spiritual remuneration was yet awaiting them as they had to face God in judgment. So that brings us up to the end of the woes in chapter 23 and uh, certainly calls our attention to our own spiritual lives. This, just coming to mind right now, reminds me of Revelation 3, uh, 2 and 3 actually. Remember the letters to the seven churches? Those aren't written to us directly, but I'm sure you can find a few things to apply there. You've left your first love. You have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead you have false teaching, those sorts of things. This is spoken to the scribes and the Pharisees, yet there is application for us in here as well. Now Jesus turns his attention then to the entire populace of the city of Jerusalem, and he laments in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's no word O here in Greek. It's translated into English because of the deep emotion that the Savior feels for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's speaking to the city both as a representative of its current residence as well as its connection to the entire nation. So Jerusalem becomes like a placeholder for the whole nation and for the residents of the city itself. It's a, I don't know, a a part for the whole, if you will. And uh, that connection there gives this very great significance. He feels a deep sense of disaster and loss. Think of a father yearning for the love of his child. Uh, parents love wanting their children to follow their God. Uh, God wanting the nation of Israel to follow after Him. Not willing that any should perish. Not taking pleasure in the death of the wicked. Not, not enjoying people's wickedness. This is the Son of God speaking here. This is not just mere humanity and grief of a human level or emotion at a human level, but God, the Son, speaking. He gives a statement as to the pattern of their past behavior. You who kill the prophets, stone those who are sent to her. Um, They were about to repeat this pattern again with Jesus. This lifestyle of rejection of God's messengers is the same thing as rejecting God himself. If they receive you, Jesus said, that means they receive me. And if they receive me, that means they receive the one who sent me. So that chain of God to Christ to his representatives sharing the gospel with others, if they're not accepted, that means that the people are not accepting God himself. Despite all of this, the Lord in his role as divine Savior expresses how many times he desired to gather Jerusalem's children together into his loving arms. He wanted fellowship with them. He wanted to offer them shelter and protection like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He wanted to care for them like a mother for her children. Sadly, however, they would have none of God's care. It says 
in verse 37 at the end, but you were not willing. They had no desire for God, no desire for His grace, no desire for His righteousness. They liked human-based, performance-based, legalistic religion. They liked power structures. They liked wealth. They liked pleasure. They liked lust and the like. But these are the things that the flesh likes, not that God likes. And so God felt like a rejected spouse when the love of his life did not want him anymore. Then comes verse 38. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Because of their stubborn unwillingness, they were destined for a desolate, deserted future. While the Lord was with them, was an opportunity to live like a green tree. But when they kill him and he leaves the building, so to speak, they will be like a dry tree with no fruit and no life, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Without a connection to the life-giving vine, they will come to nothing. And so it is too for us. John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But if you do not, you'll be cut off as a branch, cast into the fire and burned up. You must abide, continue to believe in him, in the vine, to have life. So the Lord uh, was saying this, you know, your house is left desolate. Jerusalem is destroyed after 40 years, a little less than that. And the Jewish religious system had very little of value remaining in it after the Lord left. Moses' seat... Although the Lord said in early chapter 23 that if you uh, hear what the Pharisees say, they're speaking from Moses' seat, obey them, but don't do as they do. But when the Lord left, the old covenant was ready to totally vanish away. And uh, and Moses' seat as well with it would vanish away. The old covenant would fade and disappear. The authority that the Pharisees had was no more. The apostles, for example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 said, Shall we obey God? Or men? Well, they knew who they were going to pick. They were going to pick God. The authority of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes was totally undercut. God was turning away from the Jews to the Gentiles. Their hypocrisy was total. Their authority was empty. Their failure complete. God set them aside in favor of a new thing, the church. And that that is... Um, Acts chapter 2. If you read Acts chapter 2 in that context, you see that it's a lot worse than kind of what it reads like. In other words, God is sending the gift of tongues as a sign of judgment on the nation of Israel, and he's going to go now to the Gentiles. You guys have blown it. Your house is left to you desolate. Uh, you know, Gladly call you to repent, and several thousand did repent. But the Jewish religious system was in shambles to this day. They have had no temple, no sacrifice, no way to obey the Old Testament law of God because of this judgment they brought upon themselves at that time. Verse 39, as we close, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the city will not see Jesus again until they and their nation responds properly to him and show once again that they are willing to be gathered under his wings. It's this thing that God doesn't gather to himself, people that are unwilling to be gathered to him. 
but that willingness, or lack of willingness rather, is culpable on their part. It's not that he twisted their arm behind their back and made them come. He allows people to be unwilling. I think here that the Lord did not show himself openly after his resurrection because of this. See what he says? You will not see me anymore until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he didn't go around openly showing himself after his resurrection. He went to his disciples and and these sorts of things. They're not going to see him again until they get their spiritual attitudes straightened out. His appearances were limited, although there were eyewitnesses, as you know, from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Their willingness will be expressed when they once again say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some people had said that in chapter 21, remember? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there was a crowd, a piece of the of the populace of Jerusalem that loved his coming, wanted to see him, thought he was you know, the right thing for them, was willing. Even if they were a little misguided, at least they were positive about his coming. Uh, maybe they wanted a little more political than, than spiritual, but they were, they were favorable. So they welcomed him that way, quoting from Psalm 118.26. But at, at large, the nation was rejecting Christ, and God requires them to repent and welcome him before he will pour out blessing on them. <clears throat> now, this is going to occur after a terrible time of tribulation when the nation will call out in desperation to God. So, rapture, seven-year tribulation. By the end of that, the nation of Israel will be so pounded into the ground, they will have nowhere to look but up. I was just thinking about this phrase earlier today. When you're in the darkness... Look towards the light. When you're in, listen, when you're in the darkness, look toward the light, and you will get out of that darkness. I learned this lesson <clears throat> one time in a practical way. Uh, <clears throat> I worked at a golf course in Chelsea, and that golf course had no end, it seemed, of local enemies. And I believe that that uh, place, that place suffered three fires. It's out of business now. Uh, the temporary clubhouse was uh, burned down to the ground. I mean, to the ground. And then the permanent one also had a big fire in it, and that was repaired, and then it burned again later on, some years later. This is over the course of maybe 25 years or something. Don't quote me on that. But the second fire, we were going in to clean up, and I was working with a experienced fireman from Ann Arbor. And it's you're going into the basement of this place to... You know, check it out and, and uh, see what's going on and if there's anything that you can recover and all that. And we were walking in together into this room and it was no power, there's no electricity, utter darkness. So when I walk into the room, the door is behind me, the light is coming in from the door. I can't see a thing in that room. So he said, turn towards the light. So I went around to the other, you know, the the outer edge of the room, and as I'm looking towards the doorway, I can see everything in the room because I am towards the light. And that's how I think it's, it's what I'm trying to say spiritually to us. When you're in a time of, of darkness, you're going to do best when you turn towards the light and behold Jesus and keep your eyes on him. He will help you to see through the darkness and get through that. 
the nation of Israel will be in such a time of darkness and will call out in desperation to God. This is mentioned in Zechariah 12, where it says God will pour out upon them a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. They will see him whom they have pierced when he returns. God will gather them back together. Let me go to uh, another passage, Jeremiah uh, chapter 50 in Jeremiah. And it says in verse number 4 and 5 of Jeremiah 50, this. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. And then in Ezekiel chapter 39, we see the same just before the portion that has all the stuff about the millennial temple and so on. Ezekiel 39, verse 25. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. And then one more uh, very well-known portion because it's connected to uh, Acts chapter 2. It's in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. Young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The sun is turned to darkness and all of that, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And from Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So very interesting time in the future. But that was for the future. At this time in Matthew chapter 23, the time was too late. Judgment was decreed again for them. Closing here. From our initial state, we're born in sin. We have to change our willingness toward God. We start out wanting to please ourselves, and this results in the kind of misdirected religion that the Pharisees and the scribes exhibited. It was hypocritical. It was filthy. It was full of lying. It was greedy, sinful all the way around. But if we repent of those things and change our minds so that we are willing to draw near to the Lord and have Him as our protector, guide, and Savior, then we will be rescued from our stubborn, dirty lives. And so I commend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which provides for us that deliverance, that dishwashing that we need from the inside to be clean and to to deliver us from our own stubborn unwillingness to follow him. Father in heaven, I pray that you take these words and again 
plant them in our hearts and cause them to grow and to bear fruit. Thank you for the work of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.